Hello, it's Tuesday, the 13th of February, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has drawn criticism for his controversial statement regarding NATO allies, and has also raised alarm for U.S. allies around the world. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Coming up for our in-depth, in light of North Korea ramping up tensions with weapons tests and increasingly belligerent rhetoric, we ask experts: Is Kim Jong Un preparing for war? And on Hallyu highlights today, we discuss the resurgence of J-pop in Korea, political controversy surrounding a new K-drama series, and actor Lee Jung Jae's busy year ahead. Let's begin. Korea 24. On Saturday, the former U.S. President Donald Trump said the U.S. would not be willing to defend any NATO ally that failed to designate enough of its budget for defense. This statement has drawn condemnation and raised concerns for U.S. partners around the world. For more on this story and other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello, the jungle. Yes, the former president running for office again is back at it, it seems, making making big statements that turn heads. Uh, But this one has gone global, including uh, here in South Korea, where concerns have been raised that the nation's national defense could be affected as well. Can you tell us more? Right. His rivals, as well as his own party, is responding negatively to the controversial statement, apparently denying NATO's collective security agreement. It was made at a campaign speech on Saturday in South Carolina. He said he would not defend NATO allies who don't spend enough on defense and even added he'll encourage Russia to attack them. Rather, Here's a part of his statements. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia... Will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. Not surprisingly, he raised widespread concerns and drew criticism from the White House, NATO, and a number of European countries. President Joe Biden slammed him and called it appalling and dangerous. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley said that Trump's remarks put allies at risk. Have a listen. NATO has been a success story. For 75 years, we haven't had a war in that region because it's an alliance, an alliance that scares Russia. Russia has never invaded a NATO country. They invaded Georgia, they invaded Ukraine, they invaded Moldova, all non-NATO countries. They are scared of the alliance. He just put every military member at risk and every one of our allies at risk just by saying something at a rally like that. That's the danger. Trump's remarks hints that he may force South Korea to shoulder an enormous amount of the cost of maintaining the U.S. forces Korea. The cost for 2020 to 2026 became a significant source of tension between the U.S. and South Korea when Trump was in office. The next round of negotiations for the specifics of the cost-sharing plans are expected to start this year. Meanwhile, a former U.S. official predicted that South Korea, the U.S. and Japan will continue to enhance their cooperation even if Trump is re-elected. 
That's right, in a forum hosted by the Center for Strategic and International Studies on Monday, Sung Kim, former U.S. Special Representative for North Korea, said that while U.S. events and global leadership may affect everything, South Korea and Japan are very important countries regardless of America's position. That it is only natural for the three nations to increase the sharing of political burdens and challenges, noting that the status, power, and influence of South Korea and Japan continue to increase. He stressed the need to institutionalize three-way cooperation to ensure tripartite efforts to promote mutual interests continue, regardless of domestic political events. On North Korea issues, Kim Sung-han, former National Security Advisor under the Yoon Sung-yeol government, said South Korea is open to Japan participating in nuclear deterrence dialogue between Seoul and Washington. Let's turn next to the latest regarding the government's push to expand the medical school admissions quota and response by the uh, medical sector. The Korean Intern Resident Association, representing the nation's medical residents and interns, held an extraordinary general meeting through the early hours of Tuesday. Can you share with us what was discussed? Now, the focus was on taking group action in protest of government's medical quota expansion. The members announced the leadership, with the exception of Chair Park Dan will resign en masse and that they will form an emergency steering committee to take control of operations. The association did not mention any detailed plans for collective action. The government expressed relief that no group action has been announced. Second Vice Health Minister Park Min-soo at a press briefing Tuesday urged the association to make a decision that will protect patients. He also mentioned that considering the number that has been left unchanged for 19 years in terms of medical med school quota, the expansion has been deferred for way too long. The government will seek medical reforms to improve working conditions at hospitals and ask trainee doctors to stand by their patients. Meanwhile, President Yoon Sung-yeol, while visiting Busan, has vowed to pursue the enactment of a special law on making the southern port city a global harbour city. Can you tell us more? On Tuesday, during a forum on people's livelihoods held at the Busan Metropolitan City Hall, he made the pledge as part of efforts to foster the port city into the nation's number two city and the central axis of the nation's southern region. The president said recovering the total fertility rate to one by ushering in an area of balanced regional development is a key policy that has become more urgent now more than ever. He stressed the most important access to achieving that goal is Busan. The government will designate special financial and logistic zones as well as investment promotional zones in Busan and provide financial support as well as tax breaks to companies that operate there while drawing in talent by creating a self-regulating learning environment. Through such efforts, Yoon said he will help foster Busan into a hub city of global high-tech logistics and financial industries. In other news, the Financial Times reported that Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is strengthening efforts to secure a summit meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. So what do we know? So this is seen as an attempt to achieve a diplomatic breakthrough amid falling approval ratings. Citing U.S. and Japanese officials, the British media outlet reported Tuesday that Kishida is pushing for a summit to resolve the issue of Japanese abductees. The diplomatic push also comes as the North Korean leader sent a condolence message following the earthquake on the Noto Peninsula last month. While some report there are discussions on talks taking place through diplomatic channels in Beijing, officials who were in Beijing said there's no substantive results as Kim refuses to cooperate on Japanese abductee issues. And finally, police in Malawi, the East African country, launched an investigation after a South Korean woman residing in the country was found dead in the capital city last week. Can you tell us more? 
According to Seoul's diplomatic authorities, the woman in her 60s went missing after going for a walk near her house in the Malawian capital city of Lilongwe last Wednesday morning. The local police started the search after receiving a report from her family, but she was found unconscious and she was taken to a hospital, but she was pronounced dead afterwards. The victim was reportedly living and working in Malawi with her family. Seoul's foreign ministry dispatched a consul from the South Korean embassy in Zimbabwe to Malawi to provide necessary consular assistance. That's all for our news briefing today. Daniel, thank you for those headlines. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Korea24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 29.32 points, or 1.12% on Tuesday, to close at 2,649.64. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also climbed, gaining 18.57 points, or 2.25%, to close at 845.15. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 0.1 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,328.11. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Global News Roundup, where we look beyond Korea to talk about issues making headlines around the world. Joining us in the studio for that is our KBS World Radio news editor, Ku Hee-jin. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang So for our first story, we return to the war in Gaza. Dozens of people, including children, had been killed as, quote-unquote, extremely intense Israeli airstrikes and shelling pounded multiple locations in Rafah overnight Monday. International alarm is also mounting over Israel's planned ground offensive in the southern Gazan city. What can you tell us? Well, the BBC, CNN and the Associated Press all report that more than 100 people were killed due to Israeli airstrikes as warplanes targeted different areas of the city and helicopters fired machine guns along the border areas. The reports cite the Palestine Red Crescent Society early Monday. Footage from CNN, BBC and Al Jazeera showed scenes from inside Rafah's uh, Al-Kuwaiti hospital with medics trying to resuscitate a motionless child and another showing doctors treating a wounded man on the hospital floor. Another video showed a woman weeping as she held a a child's body wrapped in white cloth. At least two mosques and around a dozen homes were targeted in the strikes on Rafah, the last major population centre in Gaza not occupied occupied by Israeli forces. Israel has vowed uh, to wipe Gaza of Hamas presence after uh, militants conducted a uh, terrorist attack and killed more than 1,200 and kidnapped 240 on October 7th. And according to Gazan Health Ministry, more than 28,100 people have been killed since the October 7th uh, attack. Meanwhile, the Israeli military confirmed it conducted a series of strikes on what it said were targets in the Shabura area of Rafa and that two Israeli hostages were rescued in a special operation. Israel has come under fire for pushing ahead with its strikes on Rafa, despite calls from the US and other nations to put them on hold. The city is currently crammed with more than 1.3 million people, more than half 
the population of Gaza. That's because the majority of people are displaced from other parts of the besieged enclave. Indeed. Most uh, Washington and uh, both Washington and the United Nations warned Israel against carrying out a ground offensive into Rafah without a plan to protect the civilians there. President Joe Biden has grown increasingly frustrated behind the scenes with his Israeli counterpart uh, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu telling advisers and others that the Prime Minister is ignoring his advice and obstructing efforts to alleviate the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, according to people familiar with the matter. So far, Biden has stopped short of directly criticising Netanyahu in public, but he has become increasingly critical of Israel's tactics, saying last week he believes the campaign in Gaza is over the top. And Jordan's uh, King Abdullah II also told Biden the world cannot afford Israel's planned ground invasion on Rafah, and the Egyptian government has reportedly threatened to void its landmark 40-year peace treaty with Israel. Meanwhile, efforts to draw up a ceasefire continue as director of the Central Intelligence Agency, William Burns, is in Cairo for the latest round of discussions. Qatar and Egypt have engaged in intense negotiations to establish a prolonged truce in Gaza. In recent weeks, Burns also met David Barnier, head of the Israel Mossad Intelligence Service, to discuss a deal. Yes, we'll continue to follow these concerning developments here on our Global Roundup uh, in the days to come. Let's turn to election news now. 2024 has been described as the biggest year for democracy, with citizens of over 60 countries home to half the world's population going to the polls this year. Mm -hmm. We've already seen a major election in Taiwan. And on Wednesday, we'll see polls open in Indonesia, the world's third largest democracy. Indeed. So, Hijin, can you preview it for us and tell us what's at stake? According to CNN and AP, more than 200 million eligible Eligible voters will head to the polls in Indonesia on Wednesday in the world's biggest single-day presidential election. The Southeast Asian nation, which is also the world's uh, third largest electoral democracy and the largest Muslim-majority country, has made impressive strides since the fall of the late dictator Suharto, uh, uh, authoritarian regime in 1998, becoming one of Asia's most vibrant uh, democracies and economies. It's a three-way race for the presidency among current Defence Minister Prawobo Subianto and two former uh, provincial governors, uh, governors, Anis Baswedan and Ganjar Prawono. Uh, Pranowo, sorry. Uh, Subianto, who is widely seen as the front runner, has picked popular President Joko Widodo's eldest son, Gibran uh, Rakabuming Raka, as his running mate. Younger Indonesians are key with around half of registered voters being under the age of 40, according to the General Election Commission. And the results, they'll have a ripple effect both in China and the US, right? Indeed. The Southeast Asian nation is a key battleground economically and politically in a region where the rival uh, global powers have long been on a collision course over Taiwan, human rights, uh, uh, US military deployments and Beijing's aggressive actions in disputed waters, including the South China Sea. Outgoing President Widodo's foreign policy avoids criticism of 
Beijing and Washington, but also rejects alignment with either power. The Delicate Balancing Act has won considerable Chinese trade and investment for Indonesia, including a $7.3 billion high-speed railway that was largely funded by China, while Jakarta has also boosted defence ties and intensified military exercises with the US. Yes, I think we can expect to bring our listeners the results on our segment on Thursday. Mm-hmm. But yes, I think we'll be covering a lot of elections on this segment this year. Mm-hmm. Finally, let's head to Japan now, where researchers have produced three piglets by cloning a genetically engineered pig that was developed in the United States for cross-species organ transplants into humans. Can you elaborate? Well, according to NHK and Nikkei Asia, a team led by PortMed Tech, a venture launched based on the research of major university scientists, announced that the three piglets were born on Sunday. The researchers said it is the first time that pigs for xenotransplantation, transplantation rather, of organs into humans have been produced in Japan. The piglets were cloned from a pig that was developed by a U.S biotech firm and its genes were engineered to reduce the risk of rejection by a human recipient. Research on pig-to-human xenotransplantation has gained more attention in recent years as it could help secure organs for transplants. The group plans to supply the piglets to research institutes and scientists say they aim to start research on transplants of pig organs into monkeys as early as this year. That's all for our Global News Roundup. Heejin, thank you for those stories. Thank you. Hi, I'm professional golfer Tan Kim. You're now listening to Korea 24 on ABS World Radio. Monday that it's developed new controllable shells for multiple rocket launchers and its ballistic control system. Such an announcement came after North Korean leader Kim Jong-un called South Korea Pyongyang's enemy number one and warned that his military would put an end to the South if attacked. Kim's remarks were made during an event marking the 76th anniversary of the founding of the reclusive state's military, according to the next state-run media. Since the start of the year, North Korea has ratcheted up tensions on the peninsula with weapons tests, including launches of cruise missiles from sea and land. With questions hanging over the prospect of relations between the two Koreas that are at their lowest in years, there's been a debate over whether Kim's moves are out of the ordinary and whether he's decided to go to war. To get some expert analysis on these issues, we're joined on the line by two guests. First, we have Mitchell Lerner, Professor of History and Director of East Asian Studies Centre at The Ohio State University. Professor Lerner, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. And we also have with us today Brian Myers, Professor of International Studies at Tongsa University in Busan. Brian Myers, uh, Professor Myers, it's good to have you back on the show. Yeah, it's great to be back. 
So North Korea is ramping up tensions on the peninsula with missile tests and belligerent rhetoric against South Korea. First off, what do you make of North Korea's recent moves? Let me start with you, Professor Lana. Well, I certainly am always wary of any increases in belligerent rhetoric, and I would never dismiss it. Obviously, this is something to be taken seriously. Um, But I admit that I don't think this is as dramatic a change in North Korean attitudes and policy as some people seem to think. Uh, This is all over the U.S. media right now. It started with an article on a popular website, 38 North, by a couple North Korean experts, and then the New York Times picked it up. And now all anyone wants to talk about is this new situation. Um, I don't know that it's that new. I think although the specific language coming from the North always changes a bit, and the specific details of the military provocations change, um, it just doesn't strike me that this is dramatically different from previous flare-ups. And and I think that a lot of people are incorrectly assuming that this represents some sort of dramatic shift in North Korea and Kim's vision of the world. So, you know, I'm old enough to remember all the way back to 2022 when there were U.S.-South Korean military drills going on and the North said that they would make the U.S. pay the most horrible price in human history. Um, I remember them blowing up the uh, joint liaison office in Kaesong a couple years ago. I remember when they threatened to turn the U.S. and Japan into ashes and darkness in 2018. So, so the list goes on and on. And while obviously we have to be wary about this, we certainly have to take it seriously, uh, I'm not sure that it's as different as people seem to think. Right, there's been some discussion of whether North Korea has made a decision to go to war with South Korea. Uh, but Professor Lerner, you're, not, you're saying you don't see any sign of this. No, um, I I don't think that there's a realistic... Obviously, again, things can happen and things spiral out of control uh, in ways that nobody wants and nobody plans for. But the really simple answer here, I think, um, is that the Kim family likes to be alive, right? And And that sounds like I'm making a joke, but it's not. In the U.S. media and to some extent within the American government, there's this tendency to portray the Kim family as just crazy, incomprehensible madmen who might do something as crazy as starting a war against the South, no matter what the consequences are for them and for the world. But I think that's a dangerous oversimplification. In fact, it's one that makes war more likely. The truth is, I think that the Kims are rational actors who know that if they spark a direct war with the South, they're they're going to be dead really quickly. And so I think there may be a lot going on behind their recent activity. I think all of them, all of the tactics, all of the purposes designed to extend the influence and the power of the Kim family um, at home and in international relations. But I don't think they want war because I think they probably suspect that they can get what they want with, with bluffs and bluster and threats. Professor Myers, what do you make of North Korea's recent provocations and also this uh, talk of uh, war that's been going on as well? Yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with uh, Professor Lerner. You know, I I think we need to consider the fact that these are first and foremost displays of technology. They're sometimes explosive displays and they violate UN resolutions, but that doesn't necessarily make them belligerent in themselves. Uh, We've seen a lot of missile tests. We've heard uh, the claim to be developing cruise missiles that can carry nuclear warheads. And we just, of course, saw the test of a new rocket launcher control system. But um, I see all this primarily as an effort to demonstrate to the world the uh, the futility of economic sanctions uh, to make South Korean voters believe 
that conservative rule uh, automatically worsens into Korean tension. And, of course, to warn the Americans against thinking that they can carry out a limited strike. As for a war, you know, I think uh, the former North Korean diplomat, Taeyong Ho, makes a good and unanswerable point when he says that a country preparing for war against a superpower and its ally is not going to be exporting uh, munitions and weaponry to another country, as North Korea has been doing with Russia. You know, this is not exactly an industrial powerhouse, so we can be pretty sure that those exports have depleted the North's own uh, military uh, resources. And in any case, what the Western media characterize as belligerent rhetoric is for the most part uh, phrased in conditional terms as a pledge to respond uh, with devastating force if provoked, if attacked. And that's not really all that different from the sort of pledges that our side makes. You know, the alliance keeps saying that if North Korea tries something, it'll be wiped off the map. Still, do you think there's not anything different about uh, North Korea's actions and words in recent weeks compared to previous years that perhaps suggests some sort of change in the North's policies towards South Korea and the US? Uh, For example, what do you make of the comments by Kim that the North no longer seeks reunification with South Korea? He made that statement at the start of the year. Was there any significance in that? Uh, Are you asking me? Professor, yes, Professor Myers. Yeah, well, I think that's quite easily explained. You know, the only way for North Korea to deter uh, a limited American strike is to make the Americans fear that such a strike would result immediately in massive retaliation against Seoul. So Kim Jong-un does not want the Americans to think that he's too much of a pan-Korean nationalist to seriously consider killing millions of South Koreans, about half of whom, of course, according to polls, uh, vote progressive and are quite sympathetic to Pyongyang. So he has ostentatiously uh, eliminated various fronts and offices that have uh, so far engaged in, in, in friendly nationalist dialogue with counterparts in South Korea. But that doesn't mean he's given up on the ultimate goal of unifying the peninsula. And in fact, he talks of uh, restoring territorial integrity uh, or, or filling out the peninsula. And I continue to believe that uh, Kim Jong-un would rather achieve that goal through peaceful or subversive methods than by risking uh, a nuclear uh, apocalypse. I would agree with Professor Lerner there that, uh, you know, he wants to stay alive. According to Trotsky, a a revolutionary's first duty is to stay alive. And this is a a de facto monarchy in in the bargain, which means that uh, he has every interest in passing on uh, his realm uh, to his offspring. Now, under the Moon administration, we saw the first stages of a very loose North-South confederation. And if Trump and Kim had made a deal at Hanoi, I think that cooperation would have deepened very quickly. So I think Kim Jong-un realizes he doesn't necessarily have to resort to nuclear uh, adventurism to get his way. Professor Lerner, you said something similar in a recent piece for the national interest and that American policy would be wise to not overreact to the North's rhetoric. Uh, You noted that in the past the North becomes more belligerent during times of internal strife and that Kim doesn't want war, he wants domestic control. Professor Elena, what is the internal strife that Kim might be dealing with right now that has caused Kim to ramp up the rhetoric uh, this year? And do you think he'll be able to wrest back that domestic control? Well, so let me qualify that a little bit. Um, I don't for a minute think that internal strife is the only factor at work here, right? Foreign policy everywhere all the time is a complicated process with a lot of different imperatives at work. So I think there's a lot going on here. 
I think that Kim is certainly acting with an eye towards getting concessions, whether that means concessions from the South or concessions from the international community. And I think he's certainly acting with an eye towards upcoming legislative elections in the South and the presidential election in the U.S. So there's a lot of factors at work here. But I, I think that if we take a look at the long history of North Korean foreign policy, we find that the North Korean leadership tends to be at its most aggressive, its most belligerent and hostile when it's struggling internally. Right? It's kind of the opposite of what common sense would suggest and certainly what most Americans expect. But we, we see it a lot. Um, so maybe that struggle internally is economic, and this is a way to win aid and assistance uh, and to have someone to blame. Or maybe this struggle is political. This is a way for Kim to rally the people behind him or to purge political opponents. Um, we've seen this in the past. We saw this in 1994. We saw this in the late 60s. So what could be going on inside North Korea now that could be pushing this? Uh, I admit I don't know a lot of details. But there are signs that there's lingering impact of COVID has hit the economy harder than we might have thought. Um, sources have suggested really significant numbers of deaths. There's been, you know, they've been talking about building a major hospital in Pyongyang for a while, but that's stalled out. They're in the process of closing a bunch of overseas embassies, probably to save money. Um, and, of course, there, there's been all the stories lately about North Korean workers uh, rioting or at least protesting in China over their wages being diverted to the military. So while we don't really know the details, I think there's enough to suggest that this is part of that historic pattern that leads us to think that maybe internal North Korean society is struggling, maybe even presenting some challenges for the regime. And so for Kim to spark a crisis with the traditional enemy in the United States and create rifts with South Korea might pay a lot of dividends for him, both in terms of winning concessions from other countries to justifying and reinforcing his own rule at home. Professor Myers, why do you think uh, Kim Jong-un is raising tensions with South Korea and the U.S. currently? Well, you know, I've been hearing for, for 30-some years now that the regime in Pyongyang is unstable, that it's uh, facing domestic uh, pressures and crises, yet I never actually see any evidence for this. So I remain skeptical that uh, that any any imminent uh, domestic threat is motivating Kim Jong-un to behave this way. You know, this is a highly repressive uh, monarchy and and uh, repressive states and monarchies both tend to be very stable. I think it's when they start liberalizing that the riots take place. And I see no sign of Kim uh, loosening his grip. But having said that, uh, I, I need to emphasize that the ideological commitment to final victory uh, over South Korea is important, and uh, military progress is virtually the only kind of progress that the regime can point to. You know, that sector of the economy is the only one that is uh, internationally competitive, and I don't believe that uh, North Korea can simply discard this uh, military-first outlook on the world uh, and and hope to keep the regime in power. So I, I do think that he's uh, that uh, what we're seeing from North Korea is the result of. Uh, sort of the ideological boundaries that the regime has put itself into, it simply has to continue in this way because it has no other way in which to legitimize its rule. Uh, we often hope that North Korea will abandon uh, military firstism and, and uh, you know, become an economy first country. But that would really eliminate the whole reason for North Korea to exist uh, next to a thriving South Korea. 
Professor Lerner, there is an argument that the US should not ignore Kim's gestures about preparing for war. This was uh, a commentary made by another regional expert, Sue Kim, in the Nikkei Asia. Uh, she said, having watched the US's dealings with two simultaneous wars, the Ukraine war and the Israel-Hamas conflict, Kim will be aware that a third conflict would further challenge the US and thus uh, Washington should not let us guard down. What do you make of this argument? Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I certainly don't think that North Korea is preparing for war, but I don't think that means the United States should let its guard down. I, I think that as we we hit 2024 and the elections are coming, both here and in South Korea, there's probably going to be an increase of North Korean belligerency. And I think that the United States and South Korea have to walk kind of a, let's say, a difficult tightrope act where they don't overreact because, again, I don't think Kim wants war. Kim certainly has nefarious plans and and certainly wants to increase his power and influence across the peninsula. So uh, I think it's vital that the United States maintains an active military presence. I think it's vital that the United States keeps nuclear-capable submarines and bombers in the region, just as sort of a symbol of the the strength of its commitment, um, and continue to try to isolate the North and maintain its alliance system and absolutely not let its guard down. Professor Myers, it seems North Korea are walking quite a tight uh, tightrope uh, at the moment. Uh, are there any concerns about tension spilling over into actual uh, localised provocations and conflicts? Well, I think there, there is a, a danger, uh, I think, because some people in America are making especially alarmist noises now because they want to vilify Russia for helping this dangerous rogue state. You know, it seems every time North Korea tests any new missiles now or any kind of new military equipment, our media say uh, Russia may have been involved in this. And uh, that, I think, is is adding to the tensions. Um, So uh, there's always a danger of of these tensions spilling over, but I don't see any great increase in this threat compared to previous decades. I mean, we need to take a few steps back and, and look at the history, not just back to, say, 2022, but to go back to the 60s and the 70s when you had armed commandos coming into the country, when you had, you know, uh, ships being hijacked and ships being sunk and and so on and so forth. And and if you look at what's going on now in that context, or you just compare the rhetoric to the rhetoric that we got in 2013, it's actually nothing all that excessive. So I would hope that uh, cooler heads prevail and that, uh, you know, some some... Uh, minor misstep at the DMZ does not lead to a bigger conflict. Professor Lerner, and finally, what do you think Kim Jong-un is looking to achieve this year? And you mentioned earlier the upcoming elections here in South Korea and the US, uh, the upcoming elections, the parliamentary elections in April and the US presidential election in November. How do you think that will affect uh, Kim's uh, thinking? I think it's absolutely part of his calculations, and, and, and I'll defer to Professor Myers on, on the South Korea elections. He certainly knows far more than I do about that. But he, here in the U.S., the election is shaping up to be a close one. Uh, Americans very rarely vote on foreign policy issues, but every little bit of of chaos that Kim can sow might hurt Biden just a little bit, and that could be enough to impact the election, especially because, as you mentioned earlier, problems in the Middle East, chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and that has, that has helped sort of justify the Republican narrative of President Biden being, being sort of weak and irrelevant in the world. And, and so I think for Kim, bringing Trump to power would mean that he gets an, an inexperienced diplomat 
someone who has made it clear that he'll give North Korea almost anything in return for some kind of deal that he can wave around for his own publicity and, and sell to his followers, followers about how brilliant he is. So um, I think he very much would like to see Trump return to power, and I think that's going to be something we're going to see a lot over the next year. Right. And also, how do you think South Korea and the U.S. should deal with North Korea during this year, then, with all that in mind, Professor Lerner? So I, I think the key, and, and, and I think uh, Professor Meyer has already said this brilliantly, um, the key is, not to, is to not overreact. Um, we have seen throughout history the, the numerous times that nobody wants war, but things spiral out of control. That was kind of the story of World War I, almost the story of the Cuban Missile Crisis. We know that Kennedy and Khrushchev were behind the scenes taking incredible steps to try to keep this from spiraling into nuclear war. But we came a lot closer than most people realize because local commanders on the ground were taking initiative, shooting down spy planes. There were threats involving submarines. So uh, I think cooler heads have to prevail mm. here and let Kim do what he's going to do and not overreact. Right, and Professor Myers, what do you think Kim will look to achieve this year and how does South Korea and the U.S. respond? Well, I would agree with uh, Professor Lerner that, that uh, Kim Jong-un would much prefer to see Donald Trump uh, in power uh, in the United States than, than Joe Biden. Um, I don't think that's going to influence his behavior in the run-up to American elections, because if he does something, uh, he would have to consider the possibility of the U.S. president of Biden uh, overreacting in order to save face with uh, voters. As for South Korea's parliamentary elections, they're already very close. And, you know, in the past, North Korea's military provocations have helped the progressives in elections here because the voters blamed the uh, Lee Myung-bak administration in 2011, for example, for increasing tension. But uh, even then, there were several months between the provocations and the elections. So I don't think Kim is going to uh, do anything uh, particularly dangerous in the run-up to the South Korean elections either. So I think the most important thing uh, in the months ahead is, is not to allow North Korea's cooperation with Putin to distort our perception of the North Korean nuclear crisis, because that predates the Ukraine conflict. And I think it's likely to continue after that conflict has been resolved. And I think it's also important for the alliance not to be so intimidated by North Korea's rhetoric and technological advances that it rushes into unwise concessions uh, to Pyongyang. So I think in the months ahead, we're going to be seeing uh, more rhetoric like this. We're going to be uh, seeing more missile tests. Um, so I think that both Seoul and Washington should continue uh, signaling a readiness to talk, to negotiate. And I would hope that regardless of who is elected president in the U.S., uh, that South Korea plays a more assertive role in uh, coordinating the proper approach instead of simply following America's lead, uh, no matter what Washington decides. We'll wrap it up there. We've been speaking to Professor Mitchell Lerner from the Ohio State University and Professor Brian Myers from Tongsa University. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Did you know that Korea 24 is active on social media? You can do more than just listen to Korea 24. You can find out what the team has been up to on Korea 24's social media accounts. We are on Instagram on KBS underscore Korea 24, where we post about our weekly segments from Monday's sports segment to Friday's movie spotlight. Sometimes we share snippets of the team's day behind the scenes so you can get to know us better. 
On YouTube, we upload filmed versions of our segments, and you can also check out what other language services have been up to. Find us on at KBS World Radio Service. Make the most of your Korea 24 experience by following us on social media. Next up, we've come to our weekly segment, Hallyu Highlights. Here we delve into the latest news from the Korean entertainment world, from K-pop to K-dramas and more. And for that, once again, we have with us our contributor, Bernie Cho, the founder and president of the Seoul-based creative agency, DFSB Collective. He joins us on the line again because I understand he is back in LA. Bernie, hello. Busy as ever, it seems. Yes, I just got off the plane a few hours ago and uh, showered and surprisingly <laughs> shaved for this, but you can't see that, so you'll just have to picture that. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for uh, joining us uh, amid your busy schedule. Uh, there's a lot to get through this week as well. I know there are a lot of things that you want to talk about, so we'll try to get through as much as we can. Uh, we start this week with the music industry, and interesting enough, not with K-pop, but with J-pop pop music from Japan. That's because we're seeing some interesting trends here in Korea and overseas. There was a recent story in the Korea Herald that highlighted how J-pop is now getting some shine on local Korean stages. And the latest year-end report from Illuminate, the makers of the Billboard music charts, has shared some facts and stats that J-pop is now making strides in expanding their popularity worldwide a la K-pop. So, Bernie, can you tell us about the latest data we're seeing about J-pop's rising popularity? Yeah, it's really interesting because, um, you know, in the sense that, you know, really for the past decade, uh, everybody inside and outside of Korea, but particularly in the West, have really talked about, you know, K-pop success, not just regionally, but globally. And for the longest time, it felt like this was something very unique to Korea. But it seems like our, our neighbors to the east, Japan, has picked up a few tips along the way and in some ways perhaps maybe even flipped the script. Uh, it's interesting now because, you know, occupational hazard, I have to read uh, music industry news, media notes from around the world. But what's really interesting now is the J-pop industry now looks to Korea as their launch pad to go global. And so what's fascinating is Luminate um, had not one but two very interesting statistics that came out in their recent year-end 2023 report. Uh, number one is that uh, when they did a review of the top 10,000 audio and video songs streaming around the world for the year, uh, the top five languages uh, was an interesting mix this time because, you know, obviously number one, English is the most popular uh, language for songs and videos around the world. Spanish coming in number two is no surprise. Indie, just by the huge size of the Indian music market, also not a surprise. Uh, but a lot of people were buzzing in the summer that Korean came in number four as the most popular language worldwide. But what was surprising was who came in at number five. Uh, in the summer, Portuguese was the fifth most um, sung language, obviously because of the size of Brazil and uh, Portugal. But Japan has leapfrogged past now um, Portuguese as the fifth most popular language that can be um, 
heard on the top 10,000 songs and videos uh, around the world. And as if that wasn't enough, uh, we started seeing statistics showing that J-pop is actually making a comeback in the Korean market. It now is creeping towards 4% market share. Uh, in terms of songs uh, listened to and streamed in Korea. And then what's fascinating is as of late, uh, many J-pop acts have actually been selling out, um, sold out concerts in Korea so much so uh, that they're actually adding dates. And what's fascinating is in Japan, Japanese acts that are finding success in Korea soon find themselves getting more attention and more awareness overseas, particularly in the West and particularly in the U.S. market. And one band that many people in Japan are looking to and looking forward to uh, is an interesting band called XG. This is a J-pop girl band that was actually trained in Korea, the K-pop style, the K-pop way also releasing their songs in English and all the members are also, you know, speak Japanese, uh, Korean and English. And now they are primed to be one of the biggest J-pop exports going global. And so it's really fascinating, really, I think, to see and hear uh, that Japan is learning uh, a lot of, um, you know, tips and tricks and techniques from K-pop to become part of this not just Korean wave, but uh, it looks like an Asian wave. Uh, starting to uh, make ripples and and hopefully make waves around the world. It's an interesting trend, certainly. Uh, How important could this be for Korea and K-pop? Should K-pop feel threatened or could this be uh, a win-win situation? Well, the role reversal is interesting because I remember when I started uh, the music industry in the 90s and early 2000s, um, the litmus test for a lot of K-pop bands uh, was to find success in Japan. And so it's interesting now that the Japanese look to Korea uh, for that kind of validation. Uh, the second thing is the Japanese music industry uh, you know, has studied the Korean way so much so that they often collaborate with Korean music companies such as JYP or Korean music artists uh, and music producers to find a way to not only cross borders but go uh, around the world. And so in many ways, I think J-pop's interest and surge in popularity going global uh, benefits uh, K-pop and and Korea and the Korean music industry as a whole. Yes, it'll be interesting to see if we see this surge in popularity continuing uh, this year for uh, J-pop in Korea and overseas as well. Let's turn next to K-dramas, the new Netflix series, A Killer Paradox, starring the acting dynamic duo of Cheushik of uh, Parasite fame and Song Seok-gu, who we talked about last week. It has debuted as the fourth most popular Netflix show in the world. It also hit number one in 11 countries, including South Korea, uh, major markets in Southeast Asia and South Asia, and interestingly, Hungary. But that's not why we have brought this up today. It's been causing some controversy here in Korea as well. There's been some backlash from supporters of the main opposition Democratic Party leader, Yi Jae-myung. Bernie, can you explain a bit more about what's been going on? Well, for full disclosure, have you actually watched the show yet? I have not seen this show yet. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Uh, I pretty much spent the Lunar New Year uh, just plowing through episodes one until the very end and waiting for a season two to happen. Now, whether this was intentional or not, it really doesn't matter, but you could not ask for better marketing. You know, for those who watched the series and felt like, wow, this was a really faithful rendition of the hit Webtoon series, um, 
many of us, myself included, actually now have to go back and watch it again because certain details um, emerged uh, over the past few days. And again, it didn't even get, it didn't even raise attention with me until this was pointed out in the press was that one of the bad guys, and I think I might be swimming in some spoiler alerts, but one of the bad guys that emerges in this series uh, is an interesting character um, by the name of um, Chairman. Uh, let me get this correct so before I screw this up. But uh, the chair, there's a Chairman character who's been brought up. And um, what's interesting about his situation is that, you know, he looks like a typical normal bad guy, you know, older guy running things out of jail. But uh, this is not really something known in Korean television or movies, but some Easter eggs were planted. And for those who read the Webtoon series, this wasn't part of the original Webtoon um, uh, script. But uh, there's a character by the name of Chairman Kyung Suk Guk. That's a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> and when you look at him, he kind of sort of looks like Lee Jae-myung. Now, you know, you could think, oh, that's a passing coincidence, you know, you, you're, you're typecasting and maybe stereotyping, you know, older, uh, you know, authority figures. But this is where it gets interesting is that if you look at his uh, jail cell patch, um, the number 4421 is one of those things where you're like, oh, it's just a random number. But it turns out that that is the number that um, was part of a scandal that E.J. Myung was involved in re regarding a land development project. And it turns out 4421 isn't coincidence. That's the number. 442.1 billion won was apparently the uh, windfall of this scandal, the amount of money that was involved in the scandal. And another bizarre um, detail, which again, I didn't pick up the first time, was uh, in this particular uh, prison, um, the he's eating sushi. And I was like, well, that's weird. And the last time I checked, I don't think any prisons anywhere around the world, let alone Korea, uh, the prisoners eat sushi. But that was a weird detail. Well, it turns out that um, Lee Jae-myung, um, his wife was accused of uh, bribing and lobbying people, or I should say abusing government, uh, the government's credit card for, of all things, buying sushi. Now, of course, Netflix and the producers are denying that there's any connection between these two characters and these details. Uh, but it's interesting to note that uh, these particular details were not part of the original webtoon, but yet made it into this TV version. And mm. so, you know, unfortunately for the fans, or I should say maybe the fanboys of E.J. Myung, the DPK leader, um, them bringing this to their attention now wants makes people want to watch it more and in many ways almost kind of feels like korea's version of the taylor swift kansas city chiefs winning the super bowl as some sort of being some gigantic political ploy from president joe <laughs> biden to win the election it almost kind of feels and and, and smells like uh we we might have a local version of that uh, right massive wacky weird conspiracy theory Right. As you said, there are, there are disclaimers saying that the characters and situations are completely fictional. Still, audience members are perhaps drawing their own conclusions. Uh, it's not the first series, of course, to have characters that have some passing resemblance to uh, real-life politicians in Korea. But I guess the situation is particularly sensitive at the moment because there are the general elections coming up in April as well. Let's continue on to some more TV or streaming news. Uh, as if it wasn't enough that Lee jung uh, the actor, will be appearing in the highly anticipated season two of 
Squid Game, which is slated to roll out sometime in 2024. Uh, we got some news that his latest Hollywood foray, he is of course appearing as a Jedi Master in The Acolyte, which is a prequel to the prequel of Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace. And it was just announced that it will be coming this summer on Disney+. Plus. That has been confirmed. So Bernie, looks like it's going to be a big year for Lee Jong-jae. Yes, I mean, he, you know, you're just incredibly lucky and blessed if you have one massive hit like uh, Squid Game to get renewed for a season two. You know everyone's going to watch um, and and see just uh, how much uh, gory and glamorous uh, the second version is going to be. And already there's tremendous hype and other teasers are coming out and spilling out online and yet um, they don't tell you the date just coming soon. It could be Definitely not tomorrow, but, you know, could be in a matter of weeks or months. But no one knows. The suspense, honestly, for me is killing me. I have a feeling it's going to come out before Halloween. So everyone has another go around at wearing Squid Game costumes and outfits. But the other um, project that he's involved in, and frankly, it was a bit quiet over the past few months because, you know, anytime any actor, actress or director or writer is involved with a Star Wars project, you know, it's not only going to be a labor of love, but a very long production. And so it was refreshing and, and slightly surprising to hear that not only are the teaser videos, um, you know, making a resurgence, but now we have a date, summer. Unfortunately, it's not going to have a theatrical run. It's going straight to Disney Plus, and Disney Plus has had a lot of um, commercial success and critical acclaim having certain series uh, go straight to Disney Plus. I know for me, a big fan of uh, The Mandalorian. But uh, The Acolyte is something that people are looking forward to because it's not a prequel. It's a prequel to the prequel, um, apparently from uh, sources, that it's a prequel to um, the original Star Wars uh, one, um, which was called, for those of you who don't know, The Phantom Menace. So it's a prequel to that set 50 years back. Um, and so it'll be interesting to hear and see sort of exactly how big his role is going to be. But what we do know so far is that it's going to be an eight-part series. And according to the producer, uh, Leslie Headland, uh, the project is supposedly going to be a mix between Frozen and Kill Bill. Uh, that's an interesting <laughs> elevator pitch. It's, I mean, I'm intrigued by that 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 odd combination. But, <laughs> sure, um, indeed. But... Uh, Nonetheless, it's something to look forward to in the summer. And so, yeah, I think it's safe to say that Lee Jong-jae is going to have a massive 2024 with not just one, but two uh, blockbuster hits rolling out very, very soon. Well, we can't wait to see what he brings to the Star Wars universe and also the next installment of Squid Game. Let's squeeze in some Blackpink news as well. Now, at the end of last year, the K-pop girl group uh, signed an extension contract with their entertainment company, YG Entertainment, for their group activities. But the members did not renew their separate individual contracts with the K-pop agency, and they've been uh, going out on their own now. And we've got some news regarding the individual members. I understand that Lisa has opened her new solo agency, Loud, that's with two L's, uh, with a global advertising campaign. Meanwhile, Rosé is writing new songs and looking for a name for her fan club as well. So, Bernie, can you give us an update on what the girls have been up to? Yeah, over the past few days, um, you know, Lisa, she made a splash. She made a statement, you know, that uh, saying that says, uh, 
if you don't go big, go home. Well, she went really big. Um, not only was it just obviously, you know, the standard typical press release, but uh, her new company, Loud, her new agency, I should say, um, they bought billboards around the world and not talking small billboards, like massive, iconic billboards. Uh, so for fans of Lisa in New York, Los Angeles, Singapore and Bangkok, uh, there are just massive uh, billboards of her in the picture, obviously dressed very stylishly and fashionably uh, with her new company's uh, new website, uh, LLOUD.co. But what's interesting is, is that uh, apparently her new agency is actually not based in Bangkok, not based in Seoul, but in New York. And so um, this huge rollout, this huge announcement of her setting up shop and having her own agency is obviously got a lot of her fans excited. But uh, I know for me, this was very intriguing and very interesting because I don't think I've ever seen an announcement for a K-pop idol going solo, go this big uh, with these billboards. I mean, huge billboards. And so like you can't miss it. You can't avoid it. Um, I mean, in terms of statements, uh, wow, she she went big. Right. That is where we're going to have to leave it for our Hallyu highlights this week. Bernie, it's been a pleasure as always, and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, I think it's what, in about a week? We'll see you then. <laughs> sure, see you next week. <laughs> and that's where we wrap up our show. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back the same time tomorrow. So join us again then for more news, reviews, and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a wonderful day. I've been your host, Kwon Jangwa, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Tune in to Wonder Hours with Hedim and join the K-pop star for two wondrous hours every weekday. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon jung helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea, keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with Global Audiobook, Once Upon a Time in Korea. And if you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday and Friday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in! KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. 
The following are recommended guidelines to follow in case of high levels of fine dust. Before going outside, check the air quality by visiting online resources or checking your local weather forecast. When the level of fine dust is high, avoid outdoor activities such as hiking, biking or field sports. Wear protective gear such as masks, glasses and hats. Close your windows, doors and dry your laundry inside. Wash your face often and make sure to also blow your nose regularly. If you have to leave your home, try to use public transportation in order to reduce air pollution. Take a shower after returning home to avoid skin irritation and rinse your sinuses if possible. Before preparing food, wash your hands and make sure to wash fruit and vegetables thoroughly before eating them. Please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures.